This is Containers, an eight-part audio documentary about global trade, capitalism, and big-ass ships. I'm your host and correspondent, Alexis Madrigal. You meet a lot of tough people near the docks. Intense captains, burly longshoremen, salty skippers, rugged old-timers. But I want you to meet the most hardcore person I've met during my time reporting on the waterfront. And I thought to myself, well, I'll go in this career, in this industry, and kind of see what happens. You know, not thinking that this is my dream to grow up and be a ship's captain. This is Lynn Corwatch. She became the first female captain of an American cargo ship under remarkable circumstances. And during those first years, I had the opportunity to sail initially as a um, maid on an oil tanker and was in Southern California when a tanker blew up and said, oh, man, maybe this is really not the gig that I want. So she joined the Master Mates and Pilots Union and began sailing on all kinds of ships around the world. I quickly kind of decided that, you know, going to places like the Far East and South America was a little bit more of a challenge. You know, in the 1970s and early 80s, they had never seen women on ships. Every time she entered a port, she had to explain to skeptical dock workers that she wasn't the captain's wife and that the men had to listen to her. It was tough work. So she decided to try to work her way up at the American shipping line Matson, which ran and still runs, ships from Oakland to Hawaii and back. I had the opportunity over the years to advance to the chief mate's position at Matson. They were very, you know, good to me. And when an opportunity came up to be promoted on a temporary basis to captain, one didn't turn it down. Yeah, of course not. Why would you? You never knew when that opportunity was going to come along again. Only one hitch. So despite the fact that I was eight months pregnant. And there's no doctor on board a container ship, let alone no bee or a midwife or a doula. I said, gosh, you know, I think I got to do this. And, you know, as you can appreciate, being pregnant is not a handicap or, you know, something that should limit your opportunities. It's just something that happens and you kind of carry on with life. So that's what happened. I was eight months pregnant Um, probably more than eight months pregnant, and said, yes, let's go. What was your plan if you'd gone into labor? It was kind of funny because my chief mate at the time um, had recently delivered his own baby in his car. So he was delighted with the idea that, oh, man, I get to do this, and won't that be really fun? You know, needless to say, it didn't turn into a reality. But what did kind of complicate the situation was after I got off the ship, um, about five days later, I did go into labor and found out that, you know, unbeknownst to me, that my son was breech. That means feet first, which makes for substantially more dangerous labor. So should I have gone into labor on the ship, it would have been a much bigger challenge than I think any of us ever anticipated. That's who Lynn Corwatch is. A down-to-earth, groundbreaking woman in the field of shipping and a longtime part of the Bay's maritime economy. She's respected by all for her toughness and intelligence. Her track record made her a natural fit to become the head of the San Francisco Marine Exchange, which may be the oldest institution in all of California. So the Marine Exchange is an organization that was founded back in 1849 to really kind of track and monitor ships as they arrived in San Francisco Bay. Um, We put the telegraph up on Telegraph Hill in order to communicate that information down to our maritime partners. We had several relay stations around the bay, you know, and primarily, you know, we were moving that information around. Um, There was a trading floor so that when we passed this information down to our, our membership, 
you know, they were trading commodities right then and there on the floor. They knew that this ship had been coming from South America or from the East Coast or from China because that would be passed through semaphore or through flags. It's not a stretch to say that San Francisco and all the surrounding towns exist basically because the bay had a good port. San Francisco became a part of the global archipelago of important cities. The waterfront area along the Embarcadero was where those break bulk ships came. And that's really, you know, where I think the economy of San Francisco grew and grew and grew. Nowadays, the Marine Exchange knits together the many different pieces of the current maritime economy. They're the honest broker that everyone works with to address stuff like safety and trade, stuff like that. Our mission really hasn't changed. We do exactly the same thing. We don't control ships. We don't direct ships. We monitor the ships because we do have management, part of our organization, as well as labor. We have become somewhat of a um, neutral provider for services. And one of those services is that they publish a book, a book that kind of inspired this entire series that you're listening to. It lists all the businesses that ply the waters. Anchors, chains, and deck fitting. Barging, boating services, boilers, and water treatment. It's not the kind of book you see much anymore. It's spiral bound with lots of tabs. It's a book that's meant to be used. And paging through it, you really see the variety of businesses who ply the waters and supply the ships. The people who bring supplies and service lifeboats and make ropes and haul trash and sell anchors. So many types of businesses that you need to have a functioning maritime economy. If the container ships are the big animals, these companies are the little nimble creatures that make the ecosystem work. What's it like inside one of these small businesses? Who works these jobs? I wanted to know, so I called up a tugboat company listed in the Marine Exchange handbook. A few days later, I was sitting across from Ted Blankenberg in a messy office inside a manufactured building right at the foot of the Bay Bridge. Let's just say he was an adventurous young man. I went to college. I spent a couple of years in the Army. I got on the, on the modern pentathlon team, running, swimming, pistol shooting, fencing, and taking a horse, hopefully over a course. Ted works for AmNav, one of the tugboat companies that services the bay. Like the rest of the maritime economy, tugboating is inextricably linked with the business of global shipping. He's also a world-class bullshitter and hilarious. Well, that's a picture of me falling off a horse into a brick wall. <laughs> He's been around the tugboat industry for 30 years. I was tending bar, and a friend of mine's mother owned a tugboat company. And my friend heard my line of uh, patter from behind the bar, and he goes, oh, we got to get you on the air. We need a night dispatcher. So I started working three days a week. This is the best job I ever had. Three 14-hour days a week from four at night till six in the morning, and you could sleep a few hours on the job. That was a good gig. But the business of tugboating is changing. Their customers, the big shipping lines, have been locked in fierce competition with each other. And I mean, let's be real. They've been in a race to the bottom. And the the shipping companies in the past, probably since 2008, have been just losing their shorts. I mean, by billions of dollars a year. Two consulting firms, Drury and Sea Intelligence, estimated 2016 shipping industry losses at eight, maybe $10 billion. And each one of those ships is, you know, it costs $150 million. So you have a big old investment and you're not only making money, you're going uh, all astern. Uh, How they stay in business, I I seriously don't know. Uh, 
how they got to this point was Maersk, which is the biggest shipping company in the world, or Danish, uh, decided to build ships that were twice as big as, as all the other ones. Maersk Line's new Triple E class will be the world's largest ships, a record 400 meters long and 59 meters wide. Triple E stands for energy efficiency, environmental performance, and economies of scale. Because if you have the same power plant, it doesn't cost that much more to build a, a ship. It's just, you know, building a bigger steel box with the same engine. And the, all the, uh, the bean counters went, well, hell, same operating costs, you know, double the cargo. Containers is presented by Flexport. Flexport's a freight forwarding company built around modern technology. They help over 2,500 companies run better global supply chains. Check them out, flexport.com, where CEO Ryan Peterson does some provocative blogging about this industry. So remember, we're dealing with an ecosystem, or a bunch of linked markets, if you prefer. When the big shipping lines make moves to compete with each other, it sends shocks through all the little players. A bunch of shipping lines followed Maersk's lead in building mega, mega, mega ships. This created a spike in available shipping supply, and demand did not follow suit. So as you might expect, prices have plummeted. That's meant really, really cheap shipping for people importing and exporting stuff. Historically, the Journal of Commerce says that it cost about 1800 or 2000 bucks to ship a box across the Pacific. Right now, the price for a big retailer is more like seven or $800. If you're making brake pads and pantyhose and toothbrushes in China and you're shipping them over to Nebraska, they're going to get shipped. Somebody's going to ship them. And if you're the end user, not Walmart, but, but the end end user, yeah, yeah, big deal. Another nickel for a pair of brake pads. I mean, you know, so, so you don't even feel it. But the shipping companies are really hurting. And that means they've become desperate to somehow survive. They're scared. Uh, the number seven in the world uh, went bankrupt. Hanjin, Korea's once mighty shipper, has applied for bankruptcy protection in the United States. Fewer calls means less revenue for all of the companies that service ships coming in. The industry is getting tougher and tougher to survive in. There's no slack left in the system. The local companies have responded with consolidation themselves. Amnav, for example, was purchased by the Marine Resources Group, which became Foss Marine, which is owned by the Seattle-based Saltchuck Resources Incorporated, a conglomerate that controls 30 logistics businesses. Everybody needs some bigger entity for protection. And that was before Donald Trump started at least talking about a so-called America First trade policy, in which presumably more things are made in the United States and less things are made in Asia. If you've already got too much shipping capacity out on the ocean, and then the U.S. suddenly starts importing fewer things, that could send an already stressed industry into implosive decline, and the blast radius could extend far beyond the West Coast ports, 12% of U.S. GDP, roughly $2 trillion worth of the economy, is dependent on goods flowing through the West Coast. You mess with that, and you're literally gambling with the national economy. And yet, the little maritime businesses soldier on, doing the work, despite the corporate squeeze and the darkness on the horizon, just like all the rest of the companies and unions who make the supply chain go.
every time a ship comes in, it's like putting on a wedding. I mean, you've got a myriad of details, and you forget one, and it's just awful. You got to notify the Coast Guard and order up longshore gangs to unload ships and line handlers to tie the big boat up. You need tugboats and a bar pilot to pilot the cargo ship into the bay, directing the movements of the tugs. The ship shows up 12 miles west of the Golden Gate Bridge. A pilot will board and take it in to, uh, into the bay all the way to its berth. After I learned about the business, I wanted to see what the actual work was. Like, how does this actually get accomplished? What does a tugboat do? So I asked Ted, and he got me on a tugboat. I threw a hydrophone into the water so I could record what was going on there. I had another mic up in the wheelhouse so I could record the humans. And then I recorded the radio back at AmNav HQ. And you can hear all three pieces of that through this. Each pilot gets a code name around the bay. The pilot of the ship that I'm going to see sent out of its berth goes by the call sign 50. His apprentice goes by Charlie. So put it together and you get 50 Charlie is going to pilot a medium-sized ship, the Cap Palliser, out of the bay. It's tied up at berth 59 and it's a two-tugboat job. There's the... And there's the tugboat that I'm on, the Patricia Ann, known over the airwaves as... Will, the skipper, is young, 41, He went to college for business, graduated, and immediately started driving boats. He ran supply vessels for the America's Cup sailing team before settling into tugboating. He wears a black baseball cap, sunglasses resting on the brim, and if you told me he was a high school baseball coach, I would not be surprised. Love having guests come out or whatever. We don't take a lot for obvious reasons. I can't tour guide Barbie and do... Even though I'm better looking than Barbie, you know? <laughs> Good thing this is radio, man. Yeah, exactly. There we go. His partner on the boat is the chief engineer, Dan. Quiet guy, dark hair, thin like a cowboy. You might get the occasional, like, with when I do rock out session. We might. <laughs> and we've got Will's son, Jaden, or Jay, a six-foot-two sophomore in high school. Now he comes with me on the boat. Wow. Because he likes, he likes being out on the water and enjoys it and... He might, he has a high interest in going to uh, Cal Maritime Academy. You see, in the maritime economy, that's the norm. Everyone seems to have a relative who sailed. Lynn Corwatch's father was in the Merchant Marine, for example, and she went to the Cal Maritime Academy, and her son went to the Cal Maritime Academy, and on and on and on. This is a pretty standard tugboat outing we're on here in the Bay. We'll be pulling it off the dock, taking it up to the turning basin turning basin, spinning it around, and probably getting released somewhere along the, the uh, inner harbor. The inner harbor is that channel that runs between Oakland and Alameda, narrow but dredged deep to 50 feet. The turning basin is a wider area that's down by Jack London Square. Most of the shipping channel is maybe 900 feet wide. Down at the turning basin, it's 1,500 feet. You get to know these waters if you're a tugboat captain or part of the crew, you work a week straight and then get a week off in most cases. Most guys hop on these boats, I mean, stay on them for a whole week, for their whole shift, whether that shift's one week, two weeks. We have uh, we have two staterooms down there. But it's cool when you sleep down below on these things. You can hear, like, the, uh, the props, wash. Will and Dan like the overnight shift. 
less recreational boats to deal with, and the quiet of the dark but working bay. See that, dude, you'll see a totally different picture of the bay at night. It's rad. Like the city, when we go out at four in the morning to go grab a ship, and you, you gotta bite, you gotta pinch yourself because it's like, you're like, wow, this, this is my view from my office. As you're going under the, like, the Bay Bridge and you're looking at the city. These guys like, actually seem to love what they do. Their industry accommodates a lot of different kinds of people. Some go to school, to the maritime academies, but others work their way up on the boats. What they call is going through the hawse pipe. You know what the hawse pipe is? Hawse pipe is what the anchor rests in, in the inside of a vessel. So see where the anchor is? See where it goes through the, the, the hull of the ship? That's called the hawse pipe. So you're coming down through the hawse pipe. What unites the academy types and the hawse pipe types is that they don't want to be workaday stiffs sitting in an office. I don't think I could ever do a 9 to 5. I mean, I don't know if there's such a thing anymore, but I... I don't think I can ever work a normal work schedule. You have to you have to be a certain type to be in this industry. I think we're all a little mentally crazy. I think we all I think we're socially we don't I think Tugger, I don't think we fit in with society. So this orange vessel ship up here, Portside Two, that's uh that's the Cap Pallister. Though it's not a large ship by the standards of the industry, it is Enormous, by any other standard. We cruise past the Cap Palliser and Will snuggles the tug up against the dock to await orders, narrating for his son the whole way. You, you keep the controls between here, noon, I call it the noon position, and then the, the 16 Waiting for the call, we look out at the big Oakland International Container Terminal, Everything one of the busiest terminals on the West Coast. There's stacks of boxes bearing the names of the big shipping lines, Maersk, MSC, CMA, CGM, APL, Costco. It used to be that individual lines operated ships and their own terminals. Now, what are called stevedoring companies run these places, leasing the land from the Port of Oakland and servicing a bunch of different ship lines. This particular one is run by SSA, Stevedoring Services of America. The guys unloading the ships are all members of ILWU, the Longshore Union. What we're looking out at is a huge and highly diverse slice of the working class that Donald Trump never seems to mention. Call it Doug's for the Cap House or 50 Charlie. 50 Charlie Revolution, afternoon. And Patty Ann, good afternoon. Afternoon, guys. Happy New Year. It's go uh, 77. 77. 77. And Patty, so when we do the turn, we'll have you push it on the port bow. And once we make our turn, we'll shift to... The first step is to hitch ourselves to the ship. We have a line on our tug that attaches to a line on the ship, allowing us to pull it around. These lines are very, very strong. I mean, they're like partially woven out of Kevlar. So once this line gets up, we'll get receive a signal. And then what I'll do is I'll come back and push on the side of the ship so that they can take in their lines and the ship will still be pressed up. Mooring lines... You often see tugboats in this position, pressed up at a 90-degree angle to the ships they're about to work, holding them against the dock after the lines on shore are released. Now it's time to start pulling the Cat Palliser off the dock. In the following sequence, the command is away, and the speed is easy, away from the dock at a low speed. Hey, Patty, away easy. Easy away, Patty. Rev away easy. Where is it now? 
It happens almost imperceptibly. The ship is so huge, and it moves so slowly and smoothly, and the tug crew is so calm that I was not actually sure what was going on. Are we pulling that thing right now? We're pulling. So we're pulling 13 tons on that thing. So how much is your, what kind of car do you drive? A Volvo. Oh. <laughs> what year? Uh, like 2014. Oh, so it's a light Volvo then. So the Chinese-made Volvo then. Yeah, Chinese-made, so yeah, that thing's light. So probably what? How much does a Volvo weigh down? 1,800 pounds. 1,800 pounds? 24. So we'll give you a, we'll say it's a ton. Yeah, it's a car or SUV? It's an SUV. It's an SUV. Uh, So we'll give you a ton on that one. It weighs a ton. So we're lifting 13 of your Volvos right now. And did you have to, like, what's the RPM on this? Now that we've got the ship off the dock, we power down to the turning basin where we'll spin the ship. We'll be pushing from the port side, which is to say on the side towards the terminal, up front near the bow, and the revolution will be pushing on the water side from the back, and it'll just spin like a revolving door. Okay, Rev. Turn to port easy. Easy to port. Patty. Easy tort. Easy tort. Patty. incredible moment being right up against this thing. I expected it to crunch more or something, to really feel like we were muscling it, but it doesn't. There's no sound of metal straining. The tugboat hardly seems to move. The water simply parts and the wall of metal looming above us rotates. So this is a light ship, right? 600 feet, drawing 27 and a half feet. That's not much volume you got pushed around, right? The last task will be to ride alongside the ship as we head out. The tugs act as brakes so the big ship doesn't get going too fast. We're we're going alongside right now. So so most of these ships they're they're like if you put it in terms of a car, their first gear is like eight knots or nine knots. That kind of speed in a narrow shipping channel can rock the other ships alongside the dock damaging them, so the tugs drag backwards on their lines. Patty, stop and drag. Stop and drag, Patty, yeah. We're finally given our release to go home. It's time to take our line in. Okay, uh, Patty, ready to get taken in now? Yep, we're getting under it right now. All in the move takes a couple of hours, though most of the action takes place in just a few moments. Soon, we're back at the dock. The trucks had begun streaming in to pick up containers from another big ship that had come to shore. While bigger ships mean less business for the tugboats, it also puts pressure on the truckers. As a whole, they need to pick up more boxes, and they still only have the same amount of time, about four days, to clear the containers out of the terminal. That creates a bigger trucker demand spike, causing congestion around the port. In other words, fewer bigger ships makes the water too empty and the land too crowded. At least here in Oakland, some places have done very well in the megaship era. In general, the trend among ports has been increasing centralization. So imagine a map of the world with lines connecting different ports. And the thickness of the line represents how much stuff gets shipped along that route. In the pre-container days, there'd be lots of skinny lines going all over the place. 
As containerization took hold in the 1970s, and later China entered the WTO in the 90s, the lines connecting China to a few ports on the West Coast get really fat, swallowing up other trade routes. The way it played out in the U.S. is that the San Pedro Bay, which is where the competing but connected ports of Long Beach and Los Angeles are located, began to dominate everyone. In 2015, for example, these two ports handled 78% of the import containers along the West Coast. And for all the West Coast ports, 62% of imports came from China. Damn near 50% of all the import trade from Asia to the West Coast is just running back and forth from San Pedro Bay to China. I ended up talking all this over in a conversation with Tim Wong, a Berkeley-educated lawyer and local polymath who published the Container Guide, a wonderful little book on the shipping industry disguised as a dockside companion to spotting boxes. In ports, as in ships, he said, everything has become about size and efficiency. Can you get big enough to stay alive and keep your whole maritime business ecosystem healthy? Some people, and I'm not one of them, don't think Oakland will survive. If this all sounds familiar, it may be because it's the economic condition motivating season two of The Wire. Good anchorage, good cranes, good railroads, close to I-95, a lot of people ready to work, right? That's my fucking town. It was, it was probably the single most uh, popular rendition of container terminals in popular culture. Like you guys never stole nothing back in the day. We ain't back in the day, Nikki. When's the last time you saw trucks backed up for three miles outside Patapsco Terminal? The Port of Baltimore, and by extension, Frank Sabatka's local longshore union, is getting squeezed by the global economic pressures that are making life hard for all the medium-sized ports. And, like, what you're effectively seeing is Oakland was able to survive for a period of time, but as technology gets better, the cost of choosing one port or another on the western seaboard, right, they all become a commodity. Um, And this is the same trouble that's happened with the container companies themselves, the liner companies, where they're basically selling this commodity, which always is dropping. The the, the value of it is always dropping. And there's lots of incentives to overproduce capacity in ways that completely drive everybody out of business or make it so that only the largest companies that can squeeze tiny pennies out of, you know, huge numbers of transactions actually can survive. And I wonder, you know, for a period of time, basically, geography was the great protection of these ports, right? Because they could eat up all the smaller regional ones, but not have to compete with much larger ones. But as boats get, you know, more efficient in the way they move, suddenly uh, they basically compete on the same footing with with other ports. And and there, then the geography sort of doesn't help you anymore, right? Like, what, what really starts to help you is, like, can you really scale up the size of the port? And, like, maybe Oakland just can't expand fast enough there. Across the world, more and more business is centralizing in fewer and fewer ports. And yet they need to maintain the whole ecosystem of services like tugboats and all that stuff. The import game is never going to be that much bigger for Oakland at this point. But they might be able to scale up their exports. That's because geography remains important for them. Think of it almost like a watershed for cargo. A cargo shed, if you will. Oakland naturally drains the whole Central Valley, not to mention Napa and Sonoma, which are some of the most important agricultural regions in the country. So the port officials want to expand on that strength, building a huge refrigerated facility that would allow Midwestern meat producers to put their pork on a train and send it all the way to the ocean, to the port. From there, it'd ship out to China. You end up with this capitalist, virtuous circle. The efficiency of global shipping 
allowed for the production of electronics and all kinds of other stuff in China, which helped create their middle class. And now that burgeoning group of wealthier Chinese people end up importing American goods, driving our own economy. But that only works as long as American producers can actually send those goods to China. If Donald Trump leads us into a trade war, those pork and wine exports to China are in trouble. And the coastal working class that depends on global trade could suffer. That's it for this week. Containers is produced and edited by the peerless Jonathan Hirsch. Mandana Mofidi is the director of audio at Fusion Media Group. Extra special thanks for this episode to Ted Blankenberg at Amnav. The crew that led me ride with them, Lou Olkowski for goading me into buying the hydrophone and advising on the mic setup. Kashmir Hill hooked me up with Tim Wong. And David Simon for the glory of the wire. Season two is the best. Don't at me. Tune in next week when we learn how San Francisco stole Guatemalan coffee from the Germans and visit the warehouse that powers all your super fancy third wave coffee experiences. See you then. <laughs>